and welcome back to Nudie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Thursday, and that means I'm reading something offbeat. Sundays are for classics, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Tonight, I am reading from a charming book by British actress Dame Enid Diana Elizabeth Rigg, better known as just Diana Rigg. She played Mrs Emma Peel in the 60s cult TV show The Avengers, and she was James Bond's wife in one of the Bond pictures, as well as becoming even more famous late in her life as Olena Tyrell in the TV hit Game of Thrones. In 1982, Diana Rigg wrote a little book called No Turn Unstoned, which is a collection of mean-spirited theatre and performance reviews about her work and those of lots of her friends and colleagues over the years. I don't think it's in print anymore, but you can find old copies on eBay, and I really recommend getting it. It's just a terrific little book. If you've got an aspiring thespian in your orbit, grab a copy for them. It will help them develop a thick skin and give them lots of laughs along the way. I'm going to read two reviews. The first is a review of a performance by Marlena Dietrich in 1973, and the reviewer is Australian wit, essayist and wag, and now RIP, sadly, Clive James. The second is a review of a play called Give Me Yesterday by A.A. Milne, and the reviewer is Miss Dorothy Parker. Let's begin with Clive James. While a Burt Bacharach arrangement of Falling in Love Again, complete with sour mutes on the trumpets, sounded longingly from the pit, the house lights went down and the discs of two lights randomly searched the forestage. Finally she emerged, and the fans did their collective nut. So ecstatic was her reception that it was obvious the performance she was about to deliver had already been taken as read, so there were no real reasons why she shouldn't have turned around and gone home again, especially considering that the tail end of her coat, composed of the pelts of innumerable small animals, had undoubtedly not yet left the dressing room. But she had much to give, and proceeded to give it, making it obvious from the first bar that forty years away from Germany had done nothing to rejig the vowels which first intrigued the world in the English-language version of the Blue Angel. I get no kick in a plen, she announced. Flying too high with some guy in the sky is her idea of nothing to do. Equally, Mere alcohol didn't thrill her at all. Any lingering doubts that such sedulously furbished idiosyncrasy is an acceptable substitute for singing were annihilated by the tumult which greeted each successive rendition. As the great lady went on recounting the story of her life in song and anecdote, the sceptical viewer was torturing himself with the premonition that there might never be an end. There was, though, although the final number was only the beginning of it, there being a convention in this branch of theatre that the star takes twice as long to get off as she does to get on. 
It was at this point that the floral tributes started hitting the stage, to the ladies' overmastering astonishment. Perhaps she had expected them to throw book tokens. The show threatened to fade on the spectacle of these epicene maniacs bombarding her with shrubbery, but as the curtains closed and the applause dipped, she paged the tabs with a practiced sweep of the arm and emerged to milk-dry the audience's last resources of pious energy. If she'd been holding a loaded luger, they couldn't have responded more enthusiastically. They really had no choice. Isn't that just the most delightful writing from Clive James? Such a talented man with the pen. I do think there was a very mean undertone going on there with Clive James. He plainly didn't really respect Marlena Dietrich's performances, or even really the crowd that went wild. But he managed to keep the tone just right, and for that he gets three thumbs up. And I should say, as a quick piece of trivia, that my mother does the best impersonation of Marlena Dietrich, singing Falling in Love Again. It's like a dead ringer for the soundtrack that I am playing just underneath this voiceover. It is one of my earliest memories of my mother in her chef's gear in the kitchen at the restaurant, leaning up against a wall, (laughs) singing falling in love again, while all the staff were crying with laughter as she did it. Very entertaining lady, my mother, when she wants to be. And now moving on to Give Me Yesterday by A.A. Milne, review by Dorothy Parker. In a shifting, sliding world, it is something to know that Mr. A.A. Whimsy the Pooh Milne stands ready. He may, tease that he is, delude us into thinking for a while that he has changed, that we are all grown up now, and then, suddenly, as the roguish sun darting from the cloud, or the little crocus popping into bloom, or the ton of coal clattering down the chute, he is our own Christopher Robin again, and everything hippity-hoppity as of old. My dearest dread is the word yesterday in the name of a play, for I know that sometime during the evening I'm going to be transported, albeit kicking and screaming, back to the scenes and costumes of a tenderer time. And I know, who show these scars to you, what the writing and the acting of these episodes of tenderer times are going to be like. I was not wrong. Heaven help me, in my prevision of the Milne work. Its hero is caused by a novel device to fall asleep and a dream and thus he is given yesterday. Me, I should have given him twenty years to life. Give Me Yesterday opens in the sunlight drawing room of the Cavendish Square house of one of those cabinet ministers. The cabinet minister is not happy. His wife is proud, cold and ambitious. His daughter is a bright young thing. His son has gone socialist, and to crown it all, it is rumoured that Mowbray is to be appointed to the coveted position of Chancellor of the Exchequer. Ah, I said to myself, for I love a responsive audience. So, it's one of those plays. All right, it's one of those plays. At least we have no Christopher Robins cocking their heads on the lawn. For a moment, you see, I'd forgotten the title, and hope tormented me. Well, at the end of the first act, The cabinet minister is leaning back in a chintz-covered chair, practising the speech he is to deliver in Yorkshire, 
and murmuring drowsily, Ah, the place of my boyhood. Happy days, happy, happy days. Then I knew we were all gone. In the second act, the cabinet minister has made that speech and is for the night back in the little bedroom in Yorkshire, where, as a boy, he spent the nights of his holidays. It appears that his boyhood sweetheart, Sally, called by Mr Louis Calhoun, who has gone British or something, Sally, Sally used to occupy the adjoining room, and he had such a nasty habit of tapping on the wall between to communicate with her. The code was not essentially difficult. There was one tap for A, two taps for B, and so on. I ask you, kind reader, but to bear this in mind, for rougher times are ahead. The cabinet minister stretches himself out on his old bed and slips picturesquely into slumber. Darkness spreads softly over the stage, save for a gentle blue beam on Mr Calhoun. Music quivers, then come lights. Then there appear two, not one, but two, Christopher Robins, each about eleven years of age, and both forced, poor kids, to get quaintsy-waintsy in doings about knights and squires and beauteous maidens. For a few minutes, everything is so cute that the mind reels. Then the cabinet minister himself gets into the dream. I do not pretend to follow the argument, and meets up with his boyhood sweetheart, who wears, and becomingly, the dress of her day. And then, believe it or not, things get worse. The cabinet minister talks softly and embarrassingly to Sally. Ah, silly, silly, silly. That's not enough. He must tap out to her, on the garden wall, his message, though she is right beside him. First he taps, and at the length it would take, the letter I. Then he goes on to L. And though surely everyone in the audience has caught the idea, he carries through to O. Oh, he's not going into V, I told myself. (laughs) Even Mild wouldn't do that to you. But he did. He tapped on through V and then did an E. Oh, if he does Y, I thought I'm through. And he did. (laughs) So I shot myself. It was unhappily a nothing, a mere scratch, and I was able to sit up and watch the dream go on. All the Cavendish Square characters of the first act march in. They force the minister to don a chancellor's robe and line themselves up between him and his little newfound love. Sadly, she vanishes, leaving him wildly shrieking her name. In the next scene, our hero appears with his coat on. To get it over to the audience, one presumes, that he is no longer in bed and asleep. And he meets, after all the years, the Sally of his youth, sitting on the steps of the garden wall, just as she used to sit. She is married, for she had had to make something of her life when ambition called him away from her. But she is not, it seems, happy either. They will fly together but the cabinet minister, leashed by caution, must first take time to settle his affairs. He will come back for her, he tells her, in a week. The final act takes us all back two days later to Cavendish Square. The minister, transformed by love and hope into a new and somewhat stressfully tender man, has started cleaning up his affairs by sending his resignation to the prime minister. All seems set for his return to the real things of life. 
Then comes word that Mowbray is not, after all, to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And right after that, little to my surprise, arrives the letter from the Prime Minister, asking our hero if he won't please come over and be the Chancellor. It is the job he always wanted. P.S. He got it, and it comes to him, oh irony, irony, just at the time he was about to get away from it all. For several minutes, Mr. Calhoun must, with no other aid than that of his face and his clenching right hand, show us a man torn, a man in agonies, of indecision. But he has been too long bound by the throngs of success. The daring has been squeezed out of him. The play ends with him sitting at his desk, one hand tapping out, Goodbye, dear. What a man. He must have had woodpecker blood in him while the other grasps the pen with which he is to write his acceptance of the Chancellorship. Now I have gone into this opus at such dreary length, not only out of masochism, but from bewilderment. On the morning after its unveiling, the critics of the daily papers went into a species of snake dance over its magnificence. A deeply moving drama on a human topic, they said. Ladies and gentlemen, I've told you the tale of the play they saw. My case rests. Dear Miss Parker, I do think that is one of the meanest reviews I have ever read. Goodness me. She revealed the entire plot and managed to mock absolutely everything about the playwright and the people in it. She was such an arch writer, but so gifted with writing. That's the first time I've featured Dorothy Parker on this podcast, and I'm sure there will be more to come in future. As a little bonus mean review, here's a review by Bernard Levin of a play called The Sound of Murder in 1959. As I left the theatre, clutching my spinning head, I swear I heard people in the theatre shout bravo. I assume they were applauding the barefaced impudence of the author for writing stuff like this, and of the management for hiring a theatre in the West End of London and putting it on. Critics are often told they must not give away the plots of murder plays. Well, Mr. William Fairchild, the author, need not fear that I will reveal his secrets. The plot is of such titanic and recondite imbecility that I couldn't reveal it even if I wanted to. It concerns a kind of male Enid Blyton whose wife and supplanter decide to murder him, not for the excellent reasons provided by the stories he writes – most of which are read to the audience in the course of the action, but simply in order to get married. There is a tape recorder which faithfully repeats great slices of the dialogue, an entirely unnecessary proceeding, since most of the play is in any case repeated by the actors in ten-minute stretches, like some sort of mad bark fugue. There is a gun, and a vicar, and chrysanthemums, and thunder and lightning, and whiskey and champagne. The champagne gets the credit in the program, though the whiskey doesn't. Why not? And a telephone, which is the only thing in the play from beginning to end that rings true. Most of the dialogue consists of the members of the cast explaining the plot to one another, a service I can well imagine they need. But I cannot see that they need the explanations to be couched in language of such shattering banality. Well. I don't think he enjoyed that play. Do you, listeners? That's where we'll leave it tonight. Honestly, who would be an actor or a playwright, storyteller? It's a tough job. I get that it can be inherently lucrative, and it can seem like an awful lot of fun too. 
But ooh, when the reviews are bad, that's got to hurt. I think Dame Diana put it really beautifully at the end of her preface to this charming book. She wrote, There are so many wonderful qualities to be found in the theatre, and courage predominates. At the risk of appearing to bang the professional drum, I think it takes guts to act. Certainly no life is at stake stepping on stage, simply a reputation should one fail, and the rewards of success are a boost to the ego and bank balance alike. Yet the courage I speak of is there every time an entrance is made, every time an actor or actress undertakes the daring and delicate task of making an audience believe. And another great quality is generosity of spirit, of which the modern part of this book stands evidence. I therefore dedicate it to all thespians, the lauded, aspiring, failed, past, present, and all joy to them, the future. I think that's thoroughly charming. Okay, join me next time when I read a modern American classic. And in the meantime, do please share Nudie Reads with your friends and family who enjoy great writing on lots of different topics. And if you are so moved, do rate it on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Many thanks. So, till next time, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.